During our time together this morning, what we're going to be talking about is God's will, knowing God's will, how to know God's will as it relates to decision making and those sorts of things. It's relevant to all of us because we all make decisions all of the time. And as Christians, we want to know what God wants and what God would be pleased with. And given the fact that God is the God of the universe and our creator, what he would want for us would be best for us. And so there's a natural even inclination for Christians to want to know what God's will is, to want to do what pleases God. And so it always comes up. And so every once in a while, it's good to stop and say, all right, how do we figure this out? How do we know God's will? Maybe it's particularly timely in light of last week's sermon, talking about the sufficiency of Scripture. So we'll take, we'll take this morning. And if we don't get done, we'll do it next week. But we're going to try to get done. Um, but I don't want to rush communion either. So if anything has to get shortened, we'll shorten the sermon and finish up next week. Next on the agenda, though, would be to do a six-week, big-picture, 30,000-foot overview um, of the great New Testament book of Ephesians. So, we're going to do Ephesians in six sittings. You'll want to have your seatbelt on for that. Um, But it'll be great. One reason I want to do Ephesians um, is because it covers, it runs the gamut. It so wonderfully takes the most profound realities about God imaginable, reaches into eternity past uh, with the, the triune God, uh, and his plans and purposes for this world. And then it tells us about salvation. It tells us about how salvation works and how it doesn't work. It talks about the church. It talks about families. It talks about work. It talks about all of this, and it puts it all together in a, an amazing way. And uh, I could use a review of how all that works together, and you probably could, even if you've been here for longer than I've been here. And we have lots of new people. And so I would love to help those of you who are new to kind of put those pieces together to see how worship relates to salvation, relates to life, relates to so much. It'll be awesome. So I kind of wanted to do it, to do it today, um, but I wanted to give you a heads up so you could be ready um, and maybe invite your friends. So we'll have a great time. Ephesians 1. I'm ready to preach Ephesians 1 right now. I would just say, let's open our Bibles and just go. You don't need any notes. Um, But we're going to save that for next week and if need be, uh, the week after that. Okay? Excited. Okay. Ten guidelines for knowing God's will. Okay? Ten guidelines for helping you to be a Christian decision maker, to make decisions that will be good for you, that will honor God, that will show love for your neighbor. Ten guidelines. I'm sure we could do this in a different format, a different way. We're going to look at different texts. uh, But these will at least help us to be thinking uh, along the right line. Lines. Number one, know that Jesus is the doer of the will of God. First guideline, know that Jesus is the doer of the will of God. And we're saying the for the right kinds of reasons, and we'll talk about why. But if you have a Bible, turn to Hebrews 10, and you'll see that Jesus is the doer of the will of God. And as you're turning to Hebrews 10, the reason I'm emphasizing it that way and setting it up that way is because in the grandest sense, when we're talking about the will of God for the world, the will of God for this broken world, the will of God is redemption, restoration, 
reconciliation. God's ultimate plan and His ultimate purpose that's going to bring glory and honor to Him for this broken, sinful, hurting, suffering world is to bring restoration, redemption. And Jesus Christ is at the center of the center of God's will. If redemption is at the center of God's purpose and plan for this world, Jesus Christ is at the center of all of it. And I love the way Hebrews talks about it in those ways, in that kind of way. So we'll look at Hebrews 10, verses 1 to 14. It's kind of a lengthy section. Uh, It's a great setup for communion as well because it talks about the once and for all finished work of Jesus. But let's go. Hebrews 10, verse 1 says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. I'm just going to put my finger there for a second. There's one thing I failed to say. It's okay, time to say it now. He's reaching back to the Old Testament. Sacrifices, sacrifices. But he's showing that those things weren't sufficient. That those things were shadows, prefiguring. Those things were intentionally looking forward to something better. Uh, If you want to be fancy, we'd call them types. All of that was typological, waiting for the ultimate antitype. Okay? The ultimate doer of God's ultimate will is what he's going to say. Verse 2, otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sin every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Ah, this is Psalm 40 stuff from this morning earlier. Verse 6, In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, putting Psalm 40 into the mouth of Jesus, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. Think not generally, think not in a general sense of Jesus always doing the right thing, even though he always did, and he did did do God's will in that sense. In this text, he came to do the will of God, the ultimate will of God, which is restoration, redemption, all the stuff that was prefigured, typified, He's going to bring fulfillment and restoration of all things. He came to do the will of God. It's Jesus. He's at the center of that. As it is written of me in the scroll of the book, when He said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then He added, Behold, I have come to do your will, your ultimate central will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. Verse 10 says, worth highlighting here, and by that will, we We sinners, us, we have been sanctified or cleansed through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. It's redemptive. It's for us by Him doing that, fulfilling the will of God. Verse 11, And every priest stands daily at a service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for 
all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. At the center of God's ultimate overarching will, plan, if you will, is Jesus. Jesus redeeming and Jesus redeeming for us and for God's glory. So if you're thinking about God's will and how to know God's will, before you get there, before it all becomes how do I make decisions and all this kind of stuff, we got to, first things first, Jesus came to do the will of God. And we benefit. God is glorified. But He's central to everything. And surely we need to carry that along with us in the way we view everything. To seek His honor, to seek His glory, to make decisions that would somehow even be a reflection of of that kind of centrality. That our kind of thinking would complement that kind of thinking. It's fantastic to think in those terms. Number two, another guideline for us. Look to Jesus and keep looking to Jesus. Look to Jesus and keep looking to Jesus. Obviously, it would be right if central to God's purposes for the world is Christ, it would make sense that we would look to Him to be central in our lives. If He came to be the reconciler, it would make sense that He'd be our reconciler and He would be most important to us and and, and that's all right and good and important. It's interesting in the book of Hebrews where we're affirmed in doing that, but we're also encouraged to keep doing that. Okay? Because life happens, we say. And life is filled with trials and life is filled with suffering. And if you're a Christian, even by Jesus, you've been promised persecution and conflict. And the Hebrew Christians, when the book of Hebrews is being written, are feeling that. And they're they're, they're losing vision. They're not seeing straight. They're forgetting about the centrality of Christ as central to God's plans and purposes. And they're thinking that maybe it's not worth continuing to have Him be central. It's God's will... For us, that he would remain central. I know it just makes sense, but the author talks about it. How about, how about Hebrews chapter 10, verse 36? Hebrews 10, 36 says, For you have need of endurance. Keep going. Don't quit. So that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. The will of God, according to context, is trusting in Jesus for atonement, trusting in Jesus for redemption, trusting in Jesus for reconciliation. When you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. How about verse 37? For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. 
But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith. We're continuing to trust in Christ and preserve their souls. God's will for your life, (laughs) it's easy to say, is that you would continue to cling to Christ. You would continue to trust in Christ. And again, this just makes logical sense. If the center of God's purpose and plan for the whole world is Christ and providing redemption, it would only make sense. It would be God's will for your life that you would cling to Him for your redemption and that you would continue to cling to Him for your redemption because even though all this garbage happens in your life and it might not seem like it's worth it, this, this puts our vision back into perspective. Oh, oh, but it is worth it. Don't go off into some other perspective, philosophy, religion that says somehow it's Christ plus or what you do or no, no, no. Central is Christ. Keep following Christ no matter what. And now we're going to transition out of Hebrews and we're going to... I'm tempted to say talk about more practical things, but that just sounds so wrong. As if these things aren't practical, okay? But they're grand and massive and and now more on the day-to-day, how do I know what to do and how do I know how to live and how do I make decisions and how do I know God's will for me and how do I know God's plan and what's best. So number three, a guideline that's kind of in a different category. How about that? Number three, know what the Bible teaches. Know what the Bible teaches. Last time we looked at 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, and it says that the Scripture makes us complete. It gives us what we need for every good work. Okay, so what you need to know to honor God and to do God's will and to please God, what you need to know, He's told you. Okay? And so we looked at 3.16 and 17, and now the laundry list, could, I could, I'm just going to give you examples. Some are related to religion, some are not related to religion. But, okay, how do, uh, how, some, some religion says, here's what you're supposed to eat and here's what you're not supposed to eat. How do you know which? I look in the Bible and I look what Jesus says in Mark chapter 7, because it's biblical and Jesus declared all foods clean. How do I know God's will for what I eat? God wants me to eat anything I want to eat, provided I don't eat too much. (laughs) Right? And I'm thankful that there are categories in the Bible for feasting. But if I feast every day, it's gluttony. Right? I mean, I'm telling you more than I wanted to tell you, but how do I know what God wants me to do? Well, what does the Bible say? And a lot of times religion tries to dictate and control your life so they tell you what to eat and what not to eat and that pleases God and that doesn't please God. And You know what? The Bible talks about it. Mark chapter 7, verse 19. Jesus declared all foods clean. Okay, that's a biblical worldview. Know what the Bible says. I had a long conversation yesterday about, with someone about what to eat and what not to eat. I quoted 1 Timothy chapter 4. It's fine. Is it okay for people to be married? Or if you're super-duper special, spiritual, you won't be married. And that's not biblical, First Timothy chapter 4. Know what the Bible says. Otherwise, you're going to be controlled by other people's wills. And you're not doing the will of God. What is the will of God for me? Well, I know what it says about food. 
What about friends? Well, the Bible doesn't say, here's who your friend should be. But the Bible talks about principles for friendship, like in Proverbs. Other places as well. 1 Corinthians. I want to know what the Bible says so I can do God's will and the kind of company I keep. Right? Does the Bible tell us how to use money? And there are principles. So I want to be biblically informed if I'm going to do God's will. What, what does the Bible teach about money? What does the Bible teach about friends? What does the Bible teach about food? What does the Bible teach about how I'm supposed to talk? The Bible talks about that too. Ephesians 4.29, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Christians are supposed to talk a certain way. Does it say here are the only words you should ever use? No, but it gives us the guidance that we, we're, we're to speak good words, not bad words. Okay, know what the Bible says about that? Sexual morality. How can I know God's will for sexual morality? Well, the Bible talks about sexual morality, so I can know God's will. I can have confidence. I can honor God. Starting with sex is good. Proverbs chapter 5, verse 19. Speaking to husbands, how about this? Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always with her love. That's a verse you should know if you're married. She's using these kinds of examples because the Bible says sex is good. And if you don't know what the Bible says, you might think sex is bad. Because the Bible talks about sexual immorality. How can you know God's will? Know what the Bible says. Sex is good. Sex is for marriage between a man and a woman. That's what Jesus says. Mark chapter 10, verse 6. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. No, how can you know God's will? I can know God's will because I know what the Bible says. I know what Jesus said. God's will is sex and that kind of relationship is between a man and a woman and they're married. Sexual activity has boundaries. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. So there are boundaries. The list could go on and on and on and on. I'm just choosing some kind of hot topics or things that are on my mind. But you, you name it, it's likely the Bible will have something to say about it. Now, does the Bible say that preachers are supposed to wear, you know, gray pants and blue shirts? See, the Bible's not sufficient. The <laughs> Bible tells us everything we need to know. But God also made us in His image, and we're decision makers. The Bible talks about dress. It talks about not trying to dress for show, but focusing on the inside more than the outside. It talks about those kinds of things. It tells us what we need to know, but it doesn't tell us more than we need to know. But if you want to know God's will, at least know what the Bible says so you can be informed to honor God, the one who has redeemed you. What does the Bible say about government and our attitude toward government? Romans 13 talks about that. What does the Bible say about partnership with other religions? 2 Corinthians 6 talks about that. There's plenty of things the Bible doesn't talk about. And we'll get to this. Apparently there's freedom to honor God as an image bearer and just make a decision. But let's make sure we have the guideline in place. Know what the Bible says. By reading the Bible, by hearing the Bible, 
by studying the Bible, by being informed. One of the reasons I want to do Ephesians next week is to do a big picture overview because it covers so much to help inform your mind so you can be a better decision maker in doing the will of God. Because that's what you want to do as a Christian. Let's move to another guideline. Number four. Develop a transformed mind. Develop a transformed mind. How about Romans chapter 12? Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, talks about transforming our minds. And it talks about the will of God. In Hebrew, or excuse me, in Romans chapter 12, go ahead and look there with me if you would. I want to be a good decision maker. Not so I can be a legalist, but because I want to honor God. I want to please Him. Well, one way is by having a transformed kind of mind. A renewed mind. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Here's that transformed mind thing. By the renewal of your mind, the making new of your mind that by testing you may discern or know what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, I don't know what that means, but it sounds right. I think I actually do know, I do know what it means, but it does sound good. Have your mind renewed, and that leads to Transformation. It leads to knowing God's will. It leads to doing God's will. What's so fascinating is the context in which it occurs because we've got 11 chapters of helping us understand how the gospel works and how God works in salvation. And then he's about ready to start telling Christians how to act and what to do to honor and please God. Let's keep it in that context. It used to be that we sat in judgment of God, like in Romans chapter 1. And we criticized God and we said, we think God should be like this. And we think God should be like this. And we don't really like that. And we really don't really like this. And we can all relate to that as unbelievers. Especially if you really had freedom to live out your unbelieving life. You sat in judgment of God. You wanted Him to do your will. You made Him in your image. And now He puts the gospel in order and we understand things and we've been saved and we're being sanctified and he says now in light of understanding that be transformed by the renewing of your mind you used to be hostile in mind against God a la Romans chapter 1 but now you actually are for him you're submitting to him you know that his wisdom is the best wisdom you know that he's for you in Christ and now the better you know that the more your mind will be transformed and in thinking the right way. And then also you're ready to start living like a Christian. Chapter 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. Doing the right thing instead of criticizing the right thing. Really what he's getting at in our context is, as you, the more you understand God and how he works for you in the gospel, even though you don't deserve it, as you meditate on that and as you understand Romans 1 to 11, you will be transformed the renewing of your mind, knowing the will of God. But he's unpacking it in the latter chapters. Now, secondarily, this is going to come from meditating on Scripture. 
and, and thinking about what God says and God's perspective and not judging God anymore, but seeing Him as the judge and the Father and the Redeemer. You go, okay, my mind is being transformed. I can't believe the things I used to say. I can't believe the things I used to agree with. I can't believe it at all. It's amazing. I now sound like the people I criticized. That kind of thing. Yeah, you've been transformed and now your mind is being transformed and now you're not against God, you're with God because He's for you. Let's go to another one, another guideline. Number five, seek wisdom. Seek wisdom. How can I make a wise choice? Back to, well, the Bible doesn't really say. It doesn't, it doesn't talk about these things. It might give me guidelines or principles, but how do I just make a wise decision? A decision that would honor God, a decision that would be good, a decision that wouldn't be foolish. I've got to seek wisdom. I love it that in Colossians, wisdom is personified in Christ. So I'm going to look to Christ. Sometimes I make fun of the what would Jesus do kind of thing because Christianity is not about that. It's about what Jesus did. But I need to repent of making fun of that perspective in one sense because what would Jesus do? Because he would do what's right. He would make the wise choice. He would make the wise decision. So I do want to look to Christ for wisdom. Beyond that, I want to look to what the Bible says about wisdom, like in the Proverbs. In so many ways, Proverbs is, is, is miscellaneous kinds of laws. If you do this, it will hurt. If you do this, it will be good. If you do that, it will be bad. Have these kinds of friends. Don't have these kinds of friends. Have this kind of an intimate relationship, not this kind of intimate relationship. A lot of it, a lot of it's, it's wisdom, God glorifying, God honoring truisms. I want to make wise choices, so I want to read Proverbs. I want to look to Christ, I want to read Proverbs. I want to get counsel from other people who are wise. There's a reason why in the Bible, in the Bible, gray hair is positive. Now, some people have gray hair and they're still foolish. None in this room. But there's a reason in the Bible that gray hair is a positive because it's assumed. Now, assumptions sometimes are, are scary, right? It's a general truism that where there's gray hair, there's been experience. They've made good decisions and they've made bad decisions. So go to someone with gray hair and ask for advice. It's the idea. A fool would say, according to Proverbs, I've got to experience it myself to figure it out. That's just dumb. That's just foolish. If somebody else already understands how it works, why wouldn't you go to them and ask them so you don't have to have egg on your face? So we, we need to seek wisdom. How do we make decisions? Wisdom comes from history, right? Gray hairs, history. Some of you are very historic. <laughs> it's just history. Now there's written history that doesn't come from people. There's biblical history. We can go there for wisdom. There's extra biblical history. We go there for wisdom. And in fact, you don't have to be a Christian to have wisdom. Now you have to be a Christian to have uppercase W wisdom. Right? Because the beginning of all wisdom is the fear of the Lord. But if I can create another category, because I think the Bible would allow that, you could have lowercase w wisdom. 
Just people who have been living their lives according to God's common grace as an image bearer. How do I make decisions that honor God? To what the Bible says, yes. Seek wisdom too. Yeah, but there's not a Bible verse for that. Well, there's lots of Bible verses that teach that wisdom is good. <laughs> Let's go to another guideline, another principle. Number six, pray. I want to know what God's will is. I want to have wisdom for knowing God's will. I've got to pray. Now, I don't want to be like the guy who prays for dumb things, even though I know I pray for dumb things sometimes. What I mean by that is, if the Bible is explicit about something, and you're busy praying about whether or not it's good or bad, and the Bible says, you heard it here first, stop praying. <laughs> okay. But as you're biblically informed, you know what the Bible says, you know what the Bible doesn't say, or you're at least getting better at figuring that out, and you saw wisdom, it's, you want to pray and say, God, help me. How do I apply this? God, how, how, how do I take this and what I've learned and how do I live it out? Because I want to honor you. I want to please you. And I know that it says in James chapter 1, verse 5, if I lack wisdom, I should ask and you'll give it to me. Please help me to make a decision. I don't know what to do. Isn't it great? Maybe, it's, maybe you won't think it's great, but... It, you see God's, God's wisdom even in not telling us every single thing in the Bible. The Bible's sufficient. It tells us what we need to know, but He doesn't tell us every single thing. Imagine how big the Bible would be. Because if it did, we wouldn't pray. It's a vital part of our relationship with God. Asking. And I like to encourage people, too, to learn about prayer. We're not doing that right now, per se. But by reading prayers in the Bible, and at least saying that prayer isn't always, you know, now I lay me down to sleep, pray the Lord my soul. To... I don't remember it anymore, but I said it thousands of times as a kid. I was great at vain repetition. What was I going to say? Um... When you read the prayers of the Bible, they're not all, you know, just nice and neat and starchy. There's passion. There's crying out to God. God, help me. God, I don't know. God, how long? God, please give me wisdom. I don't know what to do. It looks like you're acting like the saints of old. Your relationship with God is real and alive and you're asking knowing that He's good and knowing that He will answer. Pray. I was going to have you go to James chapter 1, verse 5, but I won't. Let's move to the next one. Number seven, pursue maturity. Pursue maturity. I'm going to do this one super fast. And I can't give you one Bible verse. I probably can, but I just wasn't smart enough to think up the one that would capture everything. Pursue maturity. In the Bible, we're not supposed to stay spiritual children. We're supposed to grow up. Okay? 
We could see it in principle in First John, let's say. We could see it in other places. By now you should be eating meat. Instead you have to have milk. And we, But it's not just true of spiritually. The Bible can use that illustration that you should grow up spiritually and become mature. Because it's a given that it's good to mature. Not just spiritually, but physically, as a person. It's good to grow up. And I couldn't resist putting this on the list because sometimes we forget that maturity is good and it's actually right and it's what we're aiming toward. So someone should be able to mature and become an adult so that they can provide for their families and lead and that kind of thing. There can be independence. And I'm bringing it up now because sometimes we forget this and we forget that and we're we're trying to teach our kids, you know, pursue wisdom, pray, know what the Bible says. You know, we should also be encouraging them to be growing up. Make decisions that look more like older people decisions. Be responsible. God made us to grow up. Okay? I didn't read the book years ago, but the title stuck out of my head. I'm not endorsing the book. But the book was called The Myth of Adolescence. Seems like a pretty strange category when you read the Bible. And that's just the freebie time in between when you get to still act like a child, but you look like an adult, talk like an adult, eat like an adult. (laughs) But you just get a free pass to do nothing. Maturity is good. Growing up is good. You go from being a child to being an adult. How do we help our kids to do that? Well, as they're trying to make decisions that would honor God, along the way, we're going to try to help them. And some of us adults need that help and reminder too. That we're trying to be grown-ups and act like grown-ups and to be responsible. I just couldn't resist that one. I did love that little book by Kevin DeYoung called Just Do Something. Um, young men, you need to read that book. <laughs> young women, you could read it too. But you tend to be more responsible <laughs> in our culture right now. Just do something. Grow up. You're supposed to grow up. That's how God made us, is to be grown-ups. And to not live in our parents' basements forever. Just do something. Number eight, another guideline. Don't forget God's sovereignty. Don't forget God's sovereignty. Two texts. I want you to look at these two texts. Um, James chapter 4 and Romans chapter 8. And if you haven't thought this was very practical so far, hopefully you'll think this is practical. Don't forget God's sovereignty. That God is the king. God is in charge. Okay. I want to be grown up. I want to make plans. I want to have a plan. I want to have a purpose. I want to do things. I want to have lists and checklists. And here it is. And I want to honor God and do the will of God. But it is good to remember what James chapter 4 says. James chapter 4 verse 13. Come now you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Those would all be good things to do by the way. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. 
What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. Just notice the basic difference. A plan and a plan. But the right kind of plan acknowledges God's sovereignty. It's good to want to do God's will and plan to do God's will and honor God with your decision making and be wise and to be biblical, but there needs to be this kind of, ah, God is sovereign. Lord willing, this is what's going to happen. And I don't think you have to become legalistic and every single time you say, okay, are we meeting on Tuesday for coffee? Lord willing, you know. I kind of like when people say it, but even if we don't say it, in our minds, you know what, it's that kind of attitude. You might not wake up in the morning. And that day will come one day. Lord willing, this is what we'll do. Let's have a plan. It's good to have a plan. The Bible affirms wisdom in planning. But you know what? God is sovereign. He's in charge. So don't forget God's sovereignty because He's in charge, but also don't forget God's sovereignty especially when bad things happen. Okay? You want to do the will of God. You want to honor Him so you have plans and purposes. And then something bad happens. Sort of bad or really bad. You've got to remember God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty that is for you. This is Romans 8. Okay? Romans 8 is suffering. Romans 8 is tragedy. Romans 8 is the bad stuff in a broken world. You've got to remember God's sovereignty. You'll think God is against you because bad things happen. No, it's a broken world so bad things happen, but it's so good and so important as we want to know God's will that we don't wrongly interpret the data. You know these verses. I... I, almost want to say I promise not to quote these verses to you when you're suffering, but I won't make that promise. Because they're true. I promise not to quote them to you in a preachy kind of way. And we know, these are pretty new Christians, and they can say, we know that for those who love God, he's talking about Christians, all things, context is even the bad things, work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. And he explains what he means for our good. In the end, ultimately, we're with Christ and nothing can happen that will derail or stop that if we're, if we're believers. So with all sincerity, I want to say to you as a Christian, remember God's sovereignty. When it doesn't look like He's for you, Look to the cross and you know He's for you. How about better than that? Look to the empty tomb and the fact that He's the firstborn from the dead and you know that He's for you. To the very end, He's for you. And if you know this, I can almost guarantee you have friends that don't know this and just need gracious, kind, compassionate reminders.
How could God let this happen to me? Is the cry. I, I understand. Why somebody would say that. But they really don't understand, and we, we really don't understand when we say that, we need reminding of this basic reality. Broken world, sinful world, suffering world. God is for you, empty tomb for you. And he's even working out the tragedy for your good. I wanted to go to Esther chapter 4. We won't do that, but just to make a point about providence. I mean, think how in the world did Esther get where she was? A Jewish girl with a Gentile husband. I'm not even going to put the rap on Esther. I don't know what Esther's parents did. I mean, I don't really know. All, what, what about her grandparents and the decisions they made and all the bad decision-making that perhaps went into... I don't, I don't know how to unscramble the omelet. But I suspect that there wasn't just one bad decision that got her there. And that they weren't just her decisions. And think about suffering and difficulty and all the things that happen in our life. Sometimes, you know, it's self-constructed. <laughs> but how about when it's not self-constructed? It's what other people do to us. Lack of wisdom, lack of doing God's will, and it affects us. This is reality. And it's so amazing that God has Esther at the right place at the right time for such a time as this. For the deliverance of the people of God for their good. Just remember, the takeaway would be things aren't what they seem. They're not what they seem. But they're good. Ultimately, in the hand of God, even taking bad and accomplishing His purposes for us. Providence. Number nine, don't be paralyzed by God's sovereignty. Don't be paralyzed by God's sovereignty. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 talks about this very thing. I love being a committed believer. God's sovereignty. He ordains. He purposes. He predestines. He plans. All that's in Romans chapter 8. But that might cause you to go, I have no idea. Or it might cause you to be not engaged. Or it might cause you to not pray. Because you might pray wrong. Because you don't know. You know his general purpose. You know the big picture plan. But you don't know the specifics. I love Romans chapter 8 for that reason in verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. I'm going to put my finger there and just pause for a second. It's because we don't know the God's sovereign plan in the details. Who am I supposed to marry exactly? Well, I know now. <laughs> Where should I go to school? Where should I work? Who should my friends be? Should I speak up? Should I not speak up? Should I be committed to that? Should I not be committed to that? Should we send our kids to this kind of school or that kind of school? I mean, the list goes on and on that are these more subjective kind of th kinds of things. And yet we're believing in God's sovereignty that He has a purpose and a plan and He's going to get us to the very end and He's in charge. And 
I don't know what to do. We pray. But we don't know how to pray exactly, as we ought, according to God's sovereign will. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Inaudible is the idea. That's not when you go, oh, Holy Spirit groaning. It's inaudible. You can't hear it. It's not tongues either because it's inaudible. Okay? My brother, who was here a few weeks ago, he tells the story about when he first became a Christian and he was confused by some charismatics. And so the, he had some teacher in his life that told him that you should just groan. It's Holy Spirit groanings. And he said he was laying on his bed at his house in, in probably North Hollywood. And he and his dog, Marley, Marley was a smart dog, smarter than he knew. And he was just going, oh, just groaning like that. And Marley was growling at him. <laughs> and he said, I knew then it wasn't right. <laughs> Never to do Holy Spirit groanings again. Now, that's not how we know God's will. <sighs> but I like making fun of my older brother. The point being here, the Holy Spirit does something. This, this inaudible, supernatural, I'm going to say translator, right? By the time my prayers reach the throne room, they're right. I pray the best I can based upon what I know. But I pray. I can pray fervently, passionately as a child of God, but my ignorance doesn't somehow derail things. The Holy Spirit knows far better than I do. And it works out. Verse 27, and he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Ha <laughs> ha! Awesome! So don't be paralyzed by the sovereignty of God. Trust in God's sovereignty and then pray. Number 10, and we'll end on this. I'm sure there are more principles, but we need to end and I'll end with this one. Do whatever you want to do. Here's what the Bible says. Here's what the Bible doesn't say. Here's what's wise. Here's what's not wise. I've been praying about this. And on the list goes, and then what do you do? Make a decision. But what if it's the wrong decision? Yeah, you'll make some of those. Maybe a lot of them. God works all things together for our good. Make a decision. One of my first pastors, true pastors, I remember he used to teach a series on this and he would quote Psalm 37, 4 and I've never forgotten it. It says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Maybe we could say all these other things have been delighting ourselves in the Lord. Then we do what we want to do. Along the way, our hearts have been transformed. Now, maybe it isn't that nice and neat. Just make decisions. Just make decisions. Somebody asked me this past week, how, how did God call you to ministry? I said, I wanted to be a pastor. <laughs> they didn't like the answer. Because they wanted me to say, well, this time when I was in Arkansas, and there, Arkansas is not a good place to pick. I was at Mount Rushmore on the top. And, <sighs> you get the idea. 
Well, actually, I said more than that. I said, you know, the Bible has qualifications. One of them is desire. It's very subjective. Others' qualifications are objective. They're measurable. Other people can say yes or no. So it's both. What does the Bible say? And how about, what do you want to do? And think about all the decisions you're going to make today and tomorrow and the next day. A lot of it's just going to be freedom. As an image bearer, you get to choose. It's awesome. How about even that? Praise God for your freedoms. My dog, Ozzy, is going to get the dog food that Ozzy got yesterday. And I can go to Ronza or Jimmy John's. And I probably won't pray about which place to go to. I'll thank God for the food. Now I'm off into crazy land. But you get the idea. Praise God even for the freedoms you have in making decisions and choices. Because you, unlike any of His other creatures, have amazing freedoms and amazing choices. And you can give Him honor and glory for making you like that. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you for our time together and thank you for your grace shown to us. Our earnest desire, those of us who are Christians, is to make decisions that please you and honor you. We don't want to waste our lives. We don't want to act like gods ourselves. We want to please you, whether it's a huge decision like getting married, having children, going to college, taking a certain job, not taking a certain job, moving, not moving. They're huge. And yet we make all kinds of other decisions too. Help us to be the kind of people that would want to do all that we do for your honor and for your glory without making it more difficult than it has to be. I pray right now, especially for those who are, who are hurting in significant ways, struggling with their own sin or the sin of a family member or a close friend, that you might encourage them with the fact that you indeed are for them in Christ and that you are a great God of comfort. In Jesus' name, amen.